I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today, we're in conversation with Mark Williams, a man who's been an artist, a producer, and is now a manager of great reputation. We talk about his time as an artist, how hit records come at unexpected times, the nurturing of young talent, moving studios after dark, and his varied career. I've been in a rock band, I've been in a metal band, I've done dancehall, I've done disco. The white side of living in the UK versus the Jamaican side of living in the UK, both of them run right through me. However, as with all our guests, we like to ask why they chose the music industry. Here's what Mark had to say when we asked him. <laughs> I tried I tried many things before I got my record deal at 19. I used to clean offices with my mum at five o'clock in the morning and then go to school. And I had a paper round. So I'd clean offices, do a paper round, go <laughs> to school. All right. Then during school, I worked in Budging Supermarket in the evenings. I'd go and sell in the cigarettes in the cigarette kiosk at Budging Supermarket. And by the time I left school, I worked in McDonald's, Virgin Records. I worked as an apprentice carpenter. I worked in a leather belt factory. I cleaned cars. I worked in an accountant's office for a little while. And I did all of that until I was around 17 and a half. And then I quit and said, I have to go for my dreams. And the reason why I chose music is because I was always known for it. They called me Music Mark. First year of secondary school, I got in trouble. Um, the teacher saw me writing in the back of the classroom and she called me up to find out what I was doing. And um, I showed her my song that I was writing. It was a lover's rock song. And I had three of the girls come up and perform it. And we got a round of applause. And from that day, everybody knew <laughs> plus I was the only person in my class who could do the moonwalk <laughs> believe it or not so I was just known for being a music guy and I had um, a sound system in my family so I was always known for buying records and stuff like that as well so it was always written for me I tried everything else first to avoid it and then my last job was being an apprentice carpenter and they were supposed to send me to do City and Gills after a year's work and so I got to about 17 and a half coming up to 18 and they didn't send me to college. So I quit and said, I'm just going to go for it. My cousin, Michael, who passed away a few years back, he was like my driving force. He's the guy that just said, you can sleep on my floor. You're fine. Just do your music, mate. Don't do anything else. And he, he was like uh, my inspiration. And, and uh, yeah, he's the person who kind of gave me the... Uh, the backbone to, to to go for it, you know? Your career, I mean, we've known each other for like 10, 11, 12 years now, but your career, I mean, I would have clearly known of you beforehand because of what you've done musically. You've been a producer, a writer, an artist, a teacher, a manager, an entrepreneur. You succeeded in all of those fields to, to an incredible level. I know the struggle would have been real because you talked of some of that at the top of this, but let's, Go back to the early Mark Williams. You know, what what was the music you were listening to? What were the things you were doing at school? And where, you know, where were you brought up? I was born in North London, Caledonian Road. You're talking 1970s. You know the score, bruv. 1970s, North London. It's a very white area. My early years, all I remember is going to church. My mum would do five hours on a Saturday, six hours on a Sunday, <laughs> five hours on a Wednesday, <laughs> Clean the church on a Thursday, members meeting on a Friday. Honestly, I was at the church four days a week and for five hours a time, six hours, sometimes even more. And then there's conventions and weekend, you know, there's just, just it was church, church, church. And the beauty of church, especially when you go to those spiritual Baptist churches that my mum brought us to, it's just the rhythms. You're just sitting there all day. All you're hearing is beats, beats, rhythms, rhythms. And when the spirit hits and they all start going off and the <laughs> sounds and the rhythms and the movements, and I'm sitting there tapping away. You know, so by the time we do hit studio, that's exactly what came out. Then I actually spent a few years in Canada because my dad lives in Canada. My dad left <laughs> the 
just uh, before I was born. So he found out my mum was pregnant, but he was already on his way to Canada. So I, di I didn't find out about him until I was about seven years old. And that's when I went to Canada and I lived out there for a few years, went to school out there and came back just in time for secondary school. So it was intense church and uh, just a lot of tapping and beats and stuff like that. That's where my musical inspiration. And then on the other side, I had, like I say, I had my cousins, my mum's sister, she's really close. And I had three cousins, Andrew, Ronald and Michael. And um, they were like my older brothers. Andrew was a sound, he was a carpenter and he built a whole sound system with his bare hands, like template scoops, you know, 15 inch scoops, twi chippers, tweeters, everything. Uh, we played carnival a few years, actually. All right, that's okay. how big the nice. sound system was that he built. Between Andrew, Michael and Ronald, that's where I used to just hear music, reggae music, soul music. They would just be constantly rubbing that stuff and, and, and me be looking up to them I just wanted to be in. I just wanted to impress them. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted them to see how good I was at music. So what are the kind of tunes that were being dropped on the system? Up until I started playing for the sound system, because I, you know, I was like 11, 12, and they'd go out and do their thing. And I'd be watching them leave. And I'm like, one day I'm going to get to them. So I remember I must've been fourth year secondary school. I was about 15. And um, I went straight to Bluebird Record in uh, Edgware because I went to St. Augustine yeah, yeah. in Kilburn. Yeah. Yeah. So I turn up in my school uniform <laughs> and, you know, the, the desk is literally taller than me. I was a pipsqueak. And um, I've got my chin leaning on this uh, front desk. And um, they, I pull out, um, they pull out M. Chume, not Juicy Fruit, but a track called Sugar Free. Not many people know the sugar free one. They all know Juicy Fruit. No, no, no. That's a rhythm. That's, that's, a, that's a rhythm. I bought that and ran straight down to their house in um, Archway, knocked on the door, cook on conk. And um, my cousin Andrew opened the door, looked at me, and I goes, I've got a record for you. I'm holding this record in front of me, like, a, you know, <laughs> so excited. Brings me upstairs. And he's like, sits me down, opens up, because it's a, you know, remember they were sealed with plastic. Imp import, yeah, sealed import, yeah. Import, yeah, so he opened it up. He uh, uh, switched on the Wolfdale speakers and the stereo was, everything was, you know, uh, Pioneer amp and the, everything separates the EQ and the, switched it all on and then put the record on and, you know, put the lever down on the needle and he turned around, looked at me and was like, yeah, this is good, you know, this is good, you know, Mark. <laughs> I started getting into the habit of stopping at Bluebird Record once a week, take my money that I got from cleaning offices with my mum and my paper round and all them kind of things. And I would just get these uh, records and bring them down to him. And slowly but surely, he started to see that he let me touch the decks and I could just naturally mix. For some reason, without being taught, not a lesson, they put me in front of the decks and I could just put two records together and mix them. So as soon as he saw me do that, he said, right, you're going to be the main DJ for the sound system. So I became the sound system's main DJ. And like throughout Hornsey, Archway, Holloway Road, the whole North London area there, if you were having a house party, we were playing it. And I was the main DJ. So my cousins would select and I would spin. What was the name of the sound? Lifeline Sound System, yeah, yeah. We even played against Soul to Soul in Enfield Park. Oh, really? Park. Yeah. In one mix, I got them. Because the, my sound <laughs> system was so weak. Soul to Soul selection is so deep. But I managed to mix a dancehall tune with um, Simply Red holding back the years. And the crowd went mad. I got my claim to fame. And that was it. From <laughs> then on, in Hornsey, everyone knew. Mark, music Mark. And that literally linked me to my first record deal because of my reputation in the area. If you want to do anything with music, go and see Mark. Let's talk about that next step, because fair to say that you were influential in and around that time in production and your music. How did you get that first break? And what led you into the studios to start making music? I decided around 17 and a half, 18 years old, that I was going to do whatever it takes and I'll just sleep on floors and just go for it. My cousin kind of gave me his blessing to like, you know, live rent-free at his house. <laughs> I didn't know anything about studios. I had a Casio keyboard with a little drum machine. I managed to somehow get myself a Roland 303 and I'd make beats with those and sit in my cousin's house making them these little kind of baseline beats and stuff. And he's like, oh, you're good. Then I got a little MIDI system 
and I would use the two cassette players to put a bit of music on, then record onto the next one, then layer over the top and layer over the top. So we'd just find any way you could to record. And then I started to find a few friends that had computers, Ataris, and they, I could use their Pro, I think it was using Pro, Pro 48 or something, it was called Pro 24. And I could use their um, equipment. So what I would do is literally, there was about four guys' houses I would go to, exhaust their computers, exhaust their time, and just move on to the next one. And then wait till he falls asleep, move to the next one and move to the next one. And then eventually go home and have a bath. Um, um, you know, I was grimy. Um, but what that meant is that I was constantly making music and constantly putting my wares in the, in the local area. At one stage, I'd moved from my cousin's house. I'd met a, a, a pal of mine. I'd met a friend. Well, it wasn't a friend at the time. It was a really strange meeting, walking down Holloway, Hornsey Road, and this guy was walking the other way, and he started staring at me like he wanted to do something. And so I said hello. He said hello, and we just started talking and got on. And he lived in a shared house at the top of Hornsey. It was like a massive house, had eight rooms or something. And he lived there with his girlfriend, in the shared house that her parents had a shared house with a load of people in. And he said, I think they've got a spare room there. Let me go and ask him if I can put you up in there. So this, <laughs> this kind of complete stranger puts me up in this house and I got, a, I got my own little room, which I hadn't had for a good few years then. Um, and that's, that's where my base was. That's where I kind of started running around doing all my studio work and really anchoring myself there. Then one day, I'm literally sleeping on the floor now. This is, there's, there's me, there's a quilt, and there's the floor. And that's, that's all I've got to my name. And I hear tap, tap, tap on the door. I say, come in. And this, this tall white guy, must have been 6'3", name's Casper Pound. He stuck his head through the door and he goes, um, are you Mark? I'm like, yeah. I'm lying on the floor looking up at this guy. I'm like, yeah. And he says, um, I hear you do music. I'm like, yeah. What are you doing in my room? And he's like, well, I'm looking for someone to do a studio session. Now, I'd never been in a studio. So this was like, he goes, I hear you do music and I'm looking for a writer. Can you write? I'm like, yes, just let's just get down there, shall we? So um, he, he, this kid, I learned so much from this guy. He's the same age as me. Actually, I think born a day before me, actually. Um, yeah. And um, he goes, okay. I'm going down to the studio tomorrow. Can you come with me? So we go down there and he takes me to Ian Levine's studio in um, Shepherd's Bush. The high energy guy. High energy guy, but also all the early Take That hits were Ian Levine. I never met him anyway. Right. Because this kid had managed to blag time. Obviously, I think Ian Levine is, you know, it's the early 90s. Well, it's 1990. And I, I guess he's thinking I need to keep fresh energy coming into the studios. So he's got this young guy to come in who says he can write tunes but then he comes and gets me. So we both head down to the studio. Remember it's the nineties. So take everything I say with, you know, put it into perspective. Um, I'd, I'd just taken some trips the night before. So I was, <laughs> the walls were still moving um, and we hit the studio. Now I'd never seen a studio before. So I've gone into this place. It's got the SSL desk or the Neve flying faders. He's got a fair light system in there and but, you know, back then, sampling was impossible. Uh, but he's got a Fairlight system. And I'm sitting with this this kid and he just pulls out a pile of records and goes, let's start sampling. So we sample everything. You can't do what we did now because there's no way, there's not enough publishing. You'd be, <laughs> you need like 500% of publishing to give away. You know, we had Roy Ayers, Roy Ayers, African Bombarda, Public Enemy, Billy Idol, James, I mean, there were so many samples on this record. He said to me, look, you know, we sample this guitar stab from a group called Original Concept. And he said, listen, I just want you to go as hard as you can, hard as you can. So I've just, eh, 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 I'm hammering this keyboard. Meanwhile, the keyboards are moving. Keys on the, on the keyboard, <laughs> they're moving. The, gap, the gaps between the keys were larger than the actual keys. It's crazy. <laughs> we finished that session that night and we finished two tracks. Now I go back to the house that I'm staying in and I go to the room where the pal of mine who'd let me stay there I knock on his room he's in there with his girlfriend and it's like six in the morning I turn up and I'm like you might want to have a listen to this so he's half asleep he puts the headphones on and he shoots up out of the bed his eyes are wide open now and he's like what the f is this so I'm like 
no, we've just done a tune. He's like, no, this is something else. It turned out to be, I think, one of the top 100 house tunes of all time. Carl Cox plays it every set, every set for 30 years. I don't think he's missed a set playing Total Confusion. And we ended up with this track, Total Confusion, that ended up doing a lot of uh, good stuff and helped get me into the business. Um, and I thank Casper Pound, RIP. He passed away of cancer about 10, 15 years ago. And um, I thank him because that serendipitous knock on the door, that was the universe. For me, it was the universe knocking on my door and saying, you've done enough work. We can see that you really aren't going to go anywhere. And um, you're willing to uh, starve for this. So here's your ticket. So confusion was was in, was incredible and unbelievable man but that wasn't your only defining moment i mean that there's more there's more in that history i mean more seminal music more seminal moments from from mark williams later on what was interesting about then is because i'd done this hardcore house tune which kind of started the hardcore scene if they if you used to say hardcore house music they'd say the beginning was total confusion a homeboy hip and a funky dread um but Inside me, I had all of the church, um, reggae, soul and stuff from my family that was bubbling inside me. So just before they put Total Confusion out, they put me and Casper in a studio to remix a group called um, Four For Money, a track called um, A Moment In Time. And uh, we spent the whole night doing this remix and it was like a proper house remix, piano, stabs, all the kind of really big production. And then we had two hours left. It was like six, seven in the morning again. The sunlight's just coming through. And we, I'm like, I've got an idea. I want to try something. So we get a break beat and I start shuffling this break beat. For some reason, he gives, puts the break beat on the keyboard and I'm like, chuk, 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 and I'm, I'm shuffling this break beat. And then I do this bass line on it, which is pure dub, pure dub bass line. By the time we finish this tune, this remix, that version turns out to be that two hour job we did turns out to be the one that tears the clubs to pieces. And um, after we did it, I went to um, heaven to watch it play. Uh, I think Groove Rider played it and Groove Rider played this tune for the first time. And the foghorn started at the beginning of the tune and they went right through. And he must have rewound that tune seven, eight times. And it was the best, you know, I ran up to the cage. Uh, where the DJs and I'm shouting, I'm shouting for the cage. That's my song. That's my song. And Gro Groove Rider looked at me like I was a little oink. Like we don't care if you're song, mate. I don't think he thought I was saying it was my song. I think he was saying I like the song. <laughs> He's looking at me like you're an idiot. Go away. So, so, so at the same, you know, I had these two amazing seminal moments happen at the same time. Where we're right at the beginning of hardcore house. I think I was just lucky enough to be. You know, 1990 was the start of the decade of the most uh, prolific genre production era that the UK's ever had, I think, that decade. And I think we started from the 90s by creating two sounds right there, Hardcore House and Jungle, kind of, we called it Jungle Techno first, because it still had the four to the floor in it. How much do you think that the music that you've created is a complete product of your environment? I've been in a rock band. I've been in a metal band. I've done dancehall. I've done disco. The white side of living in the UK versus the Jamaican side of living in the UK, both of them run right through me. That's what I used to infuse into the artists that I worked with after was trying to give them the broadest palette. Giving all of my influences would mean you'd have to listen to David Bowie, you'd have to listen to Nat King Cole, you'd have to listen to the Sex Pistols, and then you'd have to listen to Dennis Brown, you'd have to listen to James Brown, you know, so from the deepest funk to the deepest punk, oh I like that Copyright that because... I'm going to lock that one I'm going to lock that one down. <laughs> you know, write it down and say, I can see that appearing somewhere soon <laughs> um, um, I've always, yeah I, it's, it, I mean I don't really know many artists out there that you know, if you give your all, you're going to give your history, your what what is what you're made up of. You know, I want to spin forward really quickly before we go back. So, given the fact that you're still in the, you're still in the studio, you're still producing, you're working with those next generation artists. It is a very different soundscape and a very different way of immersing ourselves in music, or people immerse themselves in music now. 
people are very much more genre specific. They don't really kind of necessarily meld and mould outside of what they know. Do you think that you see that and is that being reflected in the artists that you're working in the studio and trying to stick to type or are they adventurous in your world as you were when you were first starting out in being able to absorb all those different influences and the music they, they're coming across? Like attracts like. I've sometimes questioned how come I attract people who have or are willing to be influenced by a very broad range of music. I think, you know, you, you stroke the C string on one guitar, the C string on the guitar stand sitting next to it vibrates. And I think the the vibration I give out comes back to me because I'm very lucky to have very versatile, not even versatile is not the word, they're just eclectic. They just have a broad palette. Uh, Raph Riley has an amazingly broad palette. Uh, Labyrinth had an amazingly broad palette. Avellino's palette is very broad. Etta Bond from dubstep to soul to rock and roll, she's done all of that. So I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by like-minded people. Those who aren't soon end up leaving. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the- is that a conscious decision? You ease them out because they're just not, the, the vibration is not coming back to you in the way that you want. Or they end up just leaving because, right. because, you know, we ask for so much more here musically, creatively. And it's, it's, it's definitely more about the creative substance over style. Um, that's what I really believe in. Let's now double back again, because I can't remember where, a homeboy hippie and a funky dread comes in 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 the timeline and the story for people who don't know you should let them know about that side of your history as well because again really important music what i've realized in life i think is everything i've asked for i've gotten if you ask for something and you work for it you're going to get you just have to see that you had it a lot of people get these things and don't even realize that they've been they they've got what they asked for and complain but you're sitting exactly where you where you asked to sit I was sleep, sleeping on floors, like I said, when I, and I, all I dreamt about was, I just want to put a record out. That's all I want to do. I just want to put a record out. Then we made total confusion. Number one dance tune, top 100 house tune of all time. I did a, a four for money moment in time. Starts the whole jungle movement kind of happening, part of the original jungle movement. So I got that. And then I went on to do uh, Roughneck, and uh, Chiba EP, I Love to Smoke Marijuana, and Don Gargan come in. And so that whole jungle movement, I was just there. Um, and then I said I wanted a studio. I just wanted a studio to work in. And I got a studio. I got a studio. And I was, you know, I, my, I asked my dad for some money. He said no. So I, from Canada, he said, like, my dad believes that if, it, if, you're not, if you can't build it, if you're not using your hands to build something. Yeah, don't do it. If I can't move into it, drive it, or, you know, don't do it. You know, I, I get it. He's, he's old school. He's old school. He's old school, yeah. So yeah. I asked him We've for some money. There. He said, no, what are you going to do with it? He didn't believe. So I just went at it and I said, you know, I'm just going to crack on. And I got a studio and um, I had that. And then I said, I wanted to, I wanted to get a top 20. And um, lucky enough, later on, I started a group called The Free Amigos. And um, we got a top 20 with that, with Louie Louie. Then we did 25 Miles with Edwin Starr, which is a funny yes. funny <laughs> story about that one. So I sampled 25 Miles and I do a big beat job on it. I do a bit of a um, Fat Boy Slim, Fat Boy Slim on it. And uh, <laughs> Kiss FM want to sign it. Um, they had a small label at the time and um, EMAP, I think it was called. It was EMAP, yeah. The publishing company owned them. Yeah. There you go. And um, they wanted the track. So... They said, um, you know, it'd be good to shoot a video. So I'm like, well, first of all, let's see if we can clear this sample and all this stuff. We've got to find Edwin Starr. So I'm thinking Edwin Starr's living just outside Vegas, you know, on the strip. <laughs> Nottingham, mate, is where he was. <laughs> I'm saying we've gone all over the place. I'm thinking this guy is going to be somewhere exotic. <laughs> this guy's lived in England. It's like you say, just outside Nottingham in a mansion out there for, for ages. I did not know. And he turns out to be the most amiable, lovely, just supportive character. Um, we ended up doing a radio tour together. He did the video for the track with us. Um, and he just turned out to be this amazing guy. And I remember, I'll never forget, he gave me this one piece of advice. We were going to go and do a performance and I'm walking in and I've got sunglasses on. And he goes to me, you sure you're going to wear them sunglasses, boy? I'm like, I'm like, Y'all gonna wear the sunglasses? He goes, well, you know, if you wear them sunglasses, you're always gonna have to wear them sunglasses. 
And I'm like, I really didn't understand it, but it took me a while to get it. But I just, I learned what he meant was when you become famous for something, I think this is a very an American thing. You know, if you're the guy that becomes famous for wearing your hat back or walking with a limp, then you better do that for the rest of your time because that's what made you famous and that's what's going to keep you in, you know. But I took that and I've always taken the stuff that I've learned from people and then, you know, used that to influence the artists that I work with. So that was... And so I ended up doing um, The Three Amigos uh, and that kind of took me up into... And I had a record label, Thumping Vinyl, so I had the label, I'd, I'd done the top 20... I had the studio, I put the first record out. Everything I asked for, I got. But I was still broke. <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> I'd gone the whole way through the 90s. I'd made over 100 records. I'd done Top of the Pops. I'd done The Word. I'd done Dance Energy. Various accolades from the dance industry. Played the Berlin Wall with West Bam. I played Limelight in New York. Really legendary stuff for someone who was 19 who grew up broke. Uh, in Caledonian Road it was way beyond what I ever thought I would do but I was still broke by the end of the 90s so that's when I switched and went into library music When you look back around the, that period were there any other people that you were able to turn to for advice talk to you know give you give you some kind of guidance and maybe even mentorship The young kids I look after now they don't know how lucky they have it because it was the Wild West the dance music industry was the wild west when I got into it and I had no manager, no tour manager, no accountant, no lawyer. You know, you, you know I, it was, I was on my own. I think I had David Glick as my lawyer, Eaton's, gone on to do amazing things since, but that was when he was a young pup. I learned quite quickly that, you know, I had, by getting burnt many times, you know, spending my whole advance in record time not realising that your advance is supposed to hold you. To last you. Know, yeah. All of these things, if I had a manager when I was 19, I would have learnt. But no, I learnt the hard way by burning through a cheque and then going back to ask for more and them looking at me across the table like, why are you asking us for money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just giving you a load. <laughs> like going back to what, what you were saying, influences, the, the, early, the strongest early influence I have in music is Trenton Harris, who was my first manager. Trenton did shared management of me with Tony Gordon, who managed Boy George and Curiosity. When was that? Ni 1990 to 1993. I didn't know that. And obviously, and I've known T a million years, yeah. as you know. Yeah. So I met Trenton and Tony Gordon and they did shared management with me. Tony Gordon had a chauffeur-driven Rolls Royce, a Silver Shadow, I think it was. The highlight of my life was to go to his office and go to record companies from his office. I would sit in the back of the Rolls Royce. <laughs> I'm getting chauffeured around London in his Rolls Royce. And um, I'll never forget driving up um, Park Lane. I've got Hyde Park on the right of me and BMW on the left of me. And we're going up Park Lane <laughs> and it's traffic. And the lane next to me, slowly a small sports car convertible comes next to the Rolls Royce and I'm sitting in the back and Eubanks is sitting <laughs> in the sports car so he looks up and does a double take because he sees this young 19 year old kid sitting in the back of this Rolls Royce with two old white guys in the front driving so I, 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 zzz, the window goes down. I give him a spud and he looks at me like with so much admiration. <laughs> Little did he know I had to borrow a fiver off of Tony when he got back to his office to get home. <laughs> it's all about image though. You haven't got to know that. It's all about, as long as, as long as the aesthetic and the look is good. I tell you. That's all that matters, I right? I tell you. But um, as for influence, early influences, Trent and Harris was very strong influence for me and taught me so many lessons by mistakes I made and him ripping me for those mistakes endlessly. <laughs> That's the lessons he taught me. He's a, he's a hard taskmaster, but I remember turning down a remix. Goldie was supposed to do a drum and bass remix. And by now, Trenton's managing Goldie and me being the um, one of the originators of Jungle and then Goldie coming in later. Goldie's flying now. And me, 
you know, I'm stewing because I was one of the architects and all these guys are getting all the honey. And uh, Trenton comes to me and says, Mark, I've got this tune. Goldie was supposed to remix it, but he doesn't want to do it. Do you want to do it? And of course, I've got, I'm on my high horse now. Why am I getting his leftovers? You know what I mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm getting tense now. Like, so I said, I said to him, I listened to the tune and I didn't like the tune. The tune was very corny, I thought, very pop. And Trent's like, you sure you don't want to do this mix, Mark? I'm going to give it to you one more time. Please do the mix. I'm like, no, I'm not doing the mix. I'm not doing the mix. I'm not feeling it, Trent. I'm not feeling it. I'm just feeling, I'm just feeling salty. So I go, I go to, nah. So they released this record and the record goes straight in at number one for about five, six weeks. It was um, UB40 and uh, um, Come Back, Baby, Come Back. That went to number one and it would not come off. And every day, Trenton would call my house, call my, and say to me, Mark, you know what I'd be doing now if you'd have taken that remix? I'd be batting people away. I'd be hanging up on the phone call. People, my, my answer machine would be rammed out with people. I'd, I'd be turning down 5K, 6K, and every day. And uh, he just had a way of teaching you in the harshest way. But <laughs> I learned that lesson. I learned, like, you know, don't, don't let your ego get in the way of your decisions, man. That is Trenton all over, and I can hear those conversations. And the one thing I know is that when he listens to this, he's going to be laughing hard and banging his steering wheel at the memory of it. You know he's going to be calling you straight afterwards 100%. as well, right? What are you talking about before? <laughs> he's, he's, he's going to be calling you and ragging you and I'm reminding you about it all over again. Good friend and obviously friend of the podcast for jumping on. But end of the 90s, we're entering the 2000s. You're doing library music a completely different role. And one of the other things I, I wanted to ask you was, there's that sense I get from you of restlessness. I got to the end of the night. I was actually exhausted musically because I'd done every genre. I'd done jungle, drum and bass, uh, disco house. I'd had a, a, a metal band, like I say. I'd done the big beat thing. And I'd literally gone, it got to the place where I'd sit in the studio and not know what to make because I didn't know if I was making house, big beat, that I could do all of this stuff, but I didn't know what I wanted to make. And a friend of mine came to me and said that his neighbour owned a library company. And he said, you know, do you want to kind of meet the guy? And I'm like, cool, I'll meet him. I don't know what library company is. And it turned out to be Extreme Music, which is like the best library company out there. And at the time, it was like 98, they were just causing a, a massive upset or, or, or stir stirring the pot in the library industry because library music beforehand had been very music you know lift music and you know sound alikes whereas they wanted authentic sounds so when they came to me and said the first thing they said is oh we're doing this opera remix album can you do like a garage remix i'm like <laughs> send it over I bang this garage remix out and then they say oh we're doing a house thing can you do it? oh send it over then we're doing a drum and bit oh send it over so basically it saved me at a time when I had kind of run out of juice they came in and said look now you can put all of that time the 10 years that you've had making music to use over here I ended up making more money doing library than the 10 years of making records and putting records out. I've had songs on the, I've got a couple of songs on the Biggie movie, uh, on like uh, another movie called uh, Domino, Dexter, the series, like all these TV series. Ours was the music that all sits in the background there. You know, it's so cool because you're not getting, the, you're not in the limelight, but you're hearing your music get used and you're seeing money come through regularly. So it saved my life and it helped me build into the next stage of my career. It helped me fund the development of Labyrinth. Which is what I want to get to. Obviously that's 2004, you're teaching on this course and you come across this incredible talent. And is it fair to say that moment changed your life, changed what you did and, and took you in a completely different direction? Looking back, it did, but at the time it didn't. At the time, it was just a kid that I met that I was going to help by giving some studio time. How I ended up meeting Lab, basically I had a studio in Walthamstow. The studio I had there, I shared with, you know, it was the 90s. I knew some naughty people, um, a, a few people in, in some, <laughs> that did some dubious things, but I was 
Mr. Music, you know? You're still Music Mark. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sitting in this, I've got my room, <laughs> I'm doing my music. Other rooms are doing other things, yeah? <laughs> um, what happened was I split with an engineer guy that I was working with who was looking after the business side of what I was doing. And one of the reasons why I ended the 90s so broke is because I didn't look after my business. All I did was care about was making beats. So we end up splitting up and uh, this guy leaves. And about a week after he leaves, someone knocks on the door of the studio. What do you guys have here? So I'm like, oh, well, it's a a studio. How long have you been here? About six years. Okay, cool. Guy walks away. A week after that, I get a phone call. You owe us business rates uh, from the council. I'm like, what do you mean business rates? What are you talking about? I don't know what are business rates. (laughs) 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 Well, you ain't paid none. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. We want our money. You're supposed to pay us. uh, If you've got a business, you're supposed to pay us, and you haven't. So um, you owe us £17,000. Now, I'm broke. I've got some equipment, scratching away at it, signing on, but still in the studio every day. I said to him, look, can I make payments? I said, no, no payments. You have to pay now. So, okay. I said, well, I can't. I really need to make payments. And this guy said to me, he goes, well, look, mate, if you're not there, they can't get the money. I said, yeah, but no, there's just got to be a way, mate. We can make payments or a plan or something. I really need to keep the street. He said, mate, listen, if you're not there, they can't (laughs) take the money. So I'm like, no, but it's got to be a way. <laughs> He's like, bro, bro, you're not Listen getting Listen to this. me. Yeah, you're not yeah, getting yeah, this, man. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're being very hard here. If you're not there. Yeah, so I, the, the penny dropped, picked up everything <laughs> and put it in yellow storage. The next day, I was out, gone, moved the stuff out. That evening, it was a Friday. I used to DJ on a pirate radio station called Unknown FM. I went down to do my show and there's a guy DJing before I go on and he's got a guy with him playing saxophone and he's hammering away at the saxophone. I really like it. So I go up to him and say, how are you doing? And this is where I think, you know, a lot of times I, I really believe that you stay focused, stay confident, keep your head down, keep grafting and the universe will move stuff around for you. Because without me telling this guy why I moved my stuff into storage, he says to me, I said, look, I just put, I've just come from storage straight here to DJ. I've had to put all my equipment in storage. He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to find another spot. He said, well, it just so happens on Monday, I'm going to this place in Wood Green. It's called a chocolate factory and they're giving out land and it's a charity so you don't have to pay business rates. <laughs> I'm like, don't, I've, oh, <laughs> that's the second time I heard the word business rates. <laughs> <laughs> this time though, you're not paying. <laughs> It's the the only only other time I've heard the word business rates. The first time someone said I owed them 17 grand. And the second time someone said, you don't have to pay any at all. So I'm like, well, this is, this is magic. So I come down to Wood Green and this guy comes in and he puts a map down of the building, a layout and says, right guys, here's all the spaces. Go find it yourself. So all these producers start running around, tapping walls, banging floors, no, 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 clapping, clapping, <laughs> you know, checking acoustics all over the place. Mm. And um, I managed to wrangle a couple of the guys together because I don't know what I'm doing, of course. <laughs> they're all tapping walls and I'm looking at them going, I don't know why they're doing this. I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm pretending I know what I'm doing. So I pull a couple of the guys together and they help me out. But I think the guy who runs the place, his name's Manoj, he's a bit of a genius. Um, and... Uh, he does a lot for the cultural sector in North London. Uh, he created this area called the Cultural Quarter. But he saw me moving around the guys, doing my thing, you know, being lively and kind of trying to get everyone moving together. And he looked at me that day and said to me, I've got a space for you across the road in, next to my office over in the other building. And also, have you ever thought of teaching? Because I really think... I like your personality and how you're doing things. So I'm like, well, I haven't thought of teaching, but how much does it pay? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, what was really good about that time was, he said, you're going to teach music business. I take it you know the music business. And I said, yes, I know the music business. Of course, I was lying through my teeth because (laughs) I didn't didn't even know what business rates are. So how was I going to know what the music business, how that ran. And, you know, I'd been in it for 10 to 12 years and I didn't know where my money was flowing. I didn't under, didn't understand. I knew what PRS was, but I didn't know where 
money, how money flows in and out. I'd, I'd, I'd not really understood the infrastructure of the business. I'd not understood what a manager's roles and responsibilities are, how PR works and stuff. So what was really beautiful about that time is that I had to cram the music industry before I could teach it. Every day before the lesson, the day before the lesson, I would learn what I was going to teach the next day. I had a, a, um, a speed course, in a sense, on the business and how it worked. And it was the best years because, you know, there were so many, oh, moments for me. Oh, that's why I was broke. Oh, that's why, that's why that record never sold a damn bean. Like, you know, I learned so much of the business and then I taught that. That's how I ended up meeting Labyrinth's mum came into my lesson and I taught her and yeah, that's another chapter. That next chapter of your life, working with Lab, all those incredible hit records, in some ways, I want to go back to that C string and that vibration because, you know, if anybody vibrated back at you I would imagine it was Lab who had like you an incredible depth of musical knowledge yeah in, in someone so young and certainly from where he lived that I I hadn't seen before the strange thing with Lab is when I met him he knew nothing about what he called secular music I'd never heard that <laughs> term before but he said to me yeah we don't in my house we don't listen to secular music I'm like Russ you don't listen to, like, no, no, just church music. I'm like, okay, okay. So when I met him, like, his mum, actually, his mum walks into my class late and uh, I end up getting on with her really well. And over, like, three or four weeks, we really kind of started to understand each other. And she came up to me and says, um, you remind me of my brother. And um, I love my brother. And uh, I want you to meet my son because I think you could really help him out. Um, she goes, he doesn't go to school. He, refu- he doesn't, he won't go into, when he was in school, he wouldn't go into the playground. He's just addicted to music. That's all he wants to do all day, every day. And nothing else matters to him. So I need someone to help him out a bit. And um, she brought down a cassette of some of the music he was making. And I played it in the class with all the kids around and that. And it was good. It was a bit churchy, a bit swingy, some nice chords, but it was good. And um, so we met and all this time now, I'm still building the studio. So there's tarpaulin on the floor. There's bare wires hanging from the the lights, the light (laughs) fittings, the sliding door that wasn't in, I hadn't bought that yet. So, you know, there's there's rubble everywhere. And... um, but Lab is so desperate to get into the studio. I would literally, on the days when I was teaching, tell him to come down and I would lock him in the room. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. I'd say, just, just don't, if anyone knocks the door, do not no, open the door. <laughs> just sit in here quietly, please. Uh, health and safety, madness. I could have got in so much <laughs> trouble for that. I don't know what I was doing. But what I quickly learned from him was that he cared about my room more than I did. He'd leave it tidier than I left it. He'd leave the equipment in immaculate condition. And um, I just, and his hunger, just like, please, 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 please let me in, please. I don't want to leave yet, please. He'd stay overnight and he was just hungry, but he didn't have a bed of music at all. It was very narrow. It was very church, hip hop, soul. That was it. And that was the most fun thing for me was knowing that he was this sponge. He had this habit of regurgitating whatever he heard on his next beat, but in a way that was different, you know? So we sat down and listened to the Beatles and we listened to all their backing vocals because they did the remaster. And we listened to all the backing vocals, the block vocals and that. And then he ended up doing a couple songs on Master Shorty's album where the block vocals are so beautiful and thick. One of the earliest things I, I did with Lab was get him to do library music. And since that, any producer I work with, I get them to do library music because what I learned was I wanted him to understand the different styles of production. So I'm like, okay, this, they want a house tune. Let's learn. Let me teach you how to make a 
this is the sounds 909 808 da, da, da. okay now they want a drum and bass tune well these are the breaks we use these are the kind of sounds do you know what I mean and um, but he was very he was not good at library he was terrible because library you've got to be good at emulating a certain genre and lab is genre defying um, not genre defining he defies genres you know so after I learned after him doing a few library tracks he's got still got a few library tracks out there but I learned early I said to him you're not good at library I said to him you're not the guy who makes library you're the guy who sets the pace that library companies will then copy we will know I said that you've made it when we get a library brief that has your song on it and that happened when we got pass out we got a library brief came back and said we want songs that sound like pass out and I took ran straight into the studio and I showed it to him and laughed in his face look there you go mate <laughs> there you go that's what we that's what we were grafting for but yeah the early years from 15 to 18 was all studying it was all studying it was learning my first rule for him was you have to learn to play the instrument properly having a rudimental knowledge of keys and chords is what held me back. If I'd have had a, a deeper knowledge and I could di I could discuss musically in musical terms with people, I'd do I'd have done a lot better. I said to him, one of the things that I need you to do is learn what you're playing so that you can converse musically. Because I think if you do that, you'll have a job for life. If there's anything I think that's being the, the biggest success story for Lab is that before he broke out, he studied his instrument properly and he studied production properly. I called it the 360 technique. He reminded of me, me of this the other day. I forgot completely about it. He goes, you remember, you taught me this 360 thing. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, you tried to teach me that you need to learn the whole thing. You can't just play the keys. You want to learn the keys. You want to learn sound mixing. You want to learn the whole thing so that you can converse at the highest levels with people. And now he's working in Hollywood doing film scores and all sorts. I mean, his euphoria stuff is, I mean, he's done on, on the TV stuff is incredible, but... It's amazing. Lab definitely changed the game with some, with, with some of those rhythms and some of those patterns. I mean, being a pass out was an incredible piece of music, but going from that, he was able to produce and write the most beautiful pieces of music. As, as you and I discovered, you know, we benefited from yeah. when he and Emily recorded Beneath You Beautiful. Yeah, right? which is... Uh, legendary track I mean that song actually was one of the songs that was given to him by Mike Posner he didn't actually write that one he wrote all the other stuff that was what that's the only song that Labs I, I I kind of convinced Lab to do that he wasn't sure about and because um, Mike Posner just came and said look mate I've written this song it, it's for me but I love your voice so much it would be an honour for you to sing this song for me and Lab was not so sure because, you know, he's a real purist. He really likes to sit and focus and write, you know, on his writing and stuff when he's doing that. But um, he did it and, it and it turned out to be the most amazing track. And Emily came and blessed it. And that was a, uh, what a moment. Lab is one of the great UK talents and it's someone that we have to hold on to. Not just Lab, but I mean, his extended family are all unbelievably talented. I was lucky enough to be blessed by hanging out with the whole family i've i've kind of sat in a room with all of them just pulsating with music you go into their house and their house vibrates it's the richest experience i'd go in there and sherelle and rachel uh, uh, they're up and down the stairs riffing with each other the boys are doing beats downstairs it's just music just you could feel why lab who's the youngest of the boys was sitting there he i think they used to do beats on the NPCs and stuff and Lab used to be desperate to go and play with them, but they'd shut him out. Um, not not in any dark way, but, you know, Mandem, Mandem's making moves right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're a kid. Just, yeah. Fall back. You get me, like, bro, your time will come. Um, but I think that's what gave him the desperation. He wanted to, you know, just like I did with my cousins, the same kind of thing, you know, um, it's weird, Lab's life mirrored mine quite heavily in that he got his record deal at 19, like I got mine. And it's just really strange how we kind of mirrored. So before we kind of wrap up, because listen, you've done us the greatest honour of talking for, uh, for a minute. You've always sat outside the business. You've done your own thing, never been inside a record company. Has there ever been a desire for you to kind of sit within those walls, be a part of the establishment, I suppose, you know, in inverted commas? 
I like being independent, but I do think I do think I have great taste blowing my own trumpet in that. I do think I have great taste. I wouldn't be in the game for this long if I didn't and have found Labyrinth and Ashniko and Avellino if I didn't have good taste. One hundred. But I think I would I I would love the opportunity to help steer a a, a, a major in their creative choices. Um because I think a lot of the times I just, especially these days, there's just nothing coming down the pipe. There's just nothing. And they're not nurturing. That's what we do. We nurture, we develop from the ground, from the seed. And um, I just think that that's what's... If, if, if a major was brave enough to have a department just for nurturing, for kind of looking for new talent, yeah. just developing, you just sit there, develop and nurture, and then it, they'll graduate that would yeah. be that would be ideal for me something like that would be perfect uh you know being like a, a feeder uh yeah. to them would be awesome but i'm happy to be outside i've always been outside i've always been a loner and um you know i've ne- i've never even really had a partner i've just gone it alone again listening to what you had to say about your early career is that thing about being broke having a lot of success but being broke what were the things that you wish you'd known at that point? And also, these are really great pointers for the young guns that are coming through now that, that, that need to know these things. What are the hard lessons that you learned along the way that you'd wish you'd known back then? Okay, the, the main thing is, I always say to all my artists now, hone your dreams right. Like, you know, dream in detail, dream in colour, and think of holistically the whole thing, you know, because... I got every, like I said, I got everything I wanted, but I was broke. Because <laughs> what I'd never asked for was money. What I never asked for was to look after my family or be able to support myself. It was just all music-driven desires and all of those desires were fulfilled, but I was still broke. So all I did was change it too. I want to be able to feed my family. I want to be able to, to provide a retirement for myself. I, I deserve that from the stuff, from the music that I've made and what I've delivered to this business. So I wrote a song called, about 2002, I wrote a song called Music Owes Me Money. And it's me rapping very, very angry. And I'll never forget the day I was, it was in the old studio that I had, <laughs> the uh, business rate studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and i never forget that night, I screamed to the gods that night. I was in the room on my, because I would, I would always start my sessions around nine o'clock at night and finish about nine in the morning. And because the night time is the best time for me because the phone doesn't ring. You know, there's no bills. The, let, the, the postman don't bring no bills. I can just turn the music up as loud as I want and lose myself. And I remember writing this rap, music owes me money. So listen up, I'm going to put the whole industry in handcuffs to let you know who the boss is i'm gonna make you motherfucking a and r hostages now major labels you better beware because i'm a madman running who just don't care i want to loot holler take over the streets you ain't getting nothing to eat till i say so so i just went in and this was me basically saying like i need to get paid for what i do now you know so i started to learn from there and i started doing a lot of nlp neuro-linguistic programming uh, Paul McKenna, Richard Bandler, and that led me into a whole new way of thinking and not having a poverty mindset, realizing that actually my upbringing is what made kept me poor. Is you know, when you go to church as long as I did, church teaches you that being poor is a virtue, being poor makes you closer to God. So I thought I was doing my subconsciously, my brain is doing me a service by keeping me poor. No matter how much money I made, it would get rid of it straight away. So the first thing, I I read this book and the book said, when you look through the Bible, the Bible doesn't write about poor people. It writes about successful people, King David, Solomon, all these guys, they they were successful guys who had land and, and concubines and all this stuff. And it's like, I had to just slowly go through my history and scratch out all the areas where that says, it's harder for a rich man to get in the eye of a camel to go for an eye of a needle. All of these things, you know, where a, a, man, a man blooms in the morning and withers by the evening like a flower. All of these things that kind of teach us to be broke, humble and broke. Be satisfied in your lack of uh, finances. And I, I just changed that. So that's, that's the thing. I teach my kids to manifest. I teach them to, to dream weave. I teach them to really focus on their goal. Most of the time you're off track. 
90% of the time, you're not going in the direction that you think you're go- that you want to get to. But you have to keep that in your mind's eye at all times. Because they say like a plane that goes from London to New York is never on course. It constantly is off course, but the auto auto system keeps it locked in and it and it only knows where it's going by the corrections. It only makes itself to that direction by getting it wrong, correcting and then correcting, then correcting and correcting until it gets to its destination. So you literally get there by a series of mistakes. Um, so I that's what I teach my guys. That's what I teach them. Like don't don't fear making mistakes. Let's talk about where you are now, because again, you know, you're you're still in Wood Green, still in you know, still in the Fable tro- Chocolate Factory and around that area. Continuity and constancy is a great thing. So, let the world know what you're up to now. Okay, so I've, I've been here for this is coming up twenty years now. In the time since me and Labyrinth broke up, what two two thousand fifteen? I've been working with Avellino. We just got the number one independent album, um, number twelve in the chart with him. I developed a young artist named Ash Nico, still working with Raph Riley, still working with Etta Bond. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still working with my art. It's still got my, I've got seven rooms now. I've I kind of expanded from the one room. I have seven studios now that are bustling with producers and writers and stuff. And um, that's kind of where I'm at. You still enjoying life? You still got that, that horizon still out of reach for you? Drum and bass is back at the moment. Uh, it's it's doing big things, so I'm back. <laughs> so for the f- <laughs> so I've been in the studio for the uh, last uh, couple of months making beats again and doing drum and bass. And um, you know, every time drum and bass comes back every ten years or so, because the last time it came back, actually we brought it back. Pa- uh, Lab brought it back with Pass Out, and um, I was lucky enough to do the drum and bass section at the end of that for him and Frisky. Um, so every 10 years or so it seems to come back so now it's time for me to make hay because you know <laughs> the, <laughs> the sun's shining on me for a, a little minute so I'm back in yeah man Ta- take it whilst you can get it mate you have <laughs> to accumulate and store it away that's it so so we're here I've got the studios I've got the offices um, we're just about to start um, Odd Child Distro um, our own little distribution company doing that I'm doing some NFT runs so just uh, you know we're doing some stuff I'm I'm really going to be odd child focused um whereas usually i'm more artist focused now we're kind of bringing the focus down to our brand a lot now and we're going to be pushing the brand a whole lot more over the next couple of years yeah and what ambitions have you still got left what i mean what's left in you know left within mark williams that he's still not done yet i need to i've got the i've had the brit i've had the mobos i've had the ivan novello a mercury i'd love a mercury but the grammy is that's the thing that gets me up in the morning now and it gives me, it's kind of just a symbol that will keep me moving in the right direction, gives me something to grasp for. But I want that Grammy. I, I see myself on that red carpet. I see myself in the audience with some artists collecting their Grammy and saying, thank you, Mark. That's it. I have to tell you, as a manager and as someone who's not, who's not got that yet, I 100% sympathise with that feeling, mate. I want that. But there's also one more. I want, I'd also like the Oscar as well. Wow. You want the EGOT? You want the yeah, EGOT? Listen, <laughs> you want the EGOT? Uh, listen, you want the Tony as well? Tr- <laughs> no, nah, listen. I'm not a greedy man. Yeah. Let's just give me just give me those two. Just and I'll, two. I'll, fall, I'll fall back and give another man a bit of space. But listen, this is part of what we do, right? The horizon is always shifting. Yeah, but the ambition is always strong. And I think that these are the things we want to try and teach. We want to try and show to other people the fact that you should never be satisfied if you if you can carry that next step, if you can go to the next stage. I think it's really important. I say always grateful, never satisfied. That's my rule. That's the ideal way to do it, you know? I always like to find a great way to finish the podcast. And I don't think we can better that line. So listen, my good friend, Mark Williams, artist, producer, manager, distro owner library music maker we shared some wicked success together brother yeah we've had some fun together come um, on come on we've had some great fun together it's we been, might have to go yeah. for the oscar let's do it together let's, no, listen, let's, make a, let's go for that grammy together bro uh, listen when we get off the phone let's talk about this but i'm definitely i want that i want that me and you are hanging on the red carpet together it's it's a it's a lot let's do this let's get it let's get it 100 percent, bro Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for spending time on the Did You Know podcast. Bless you. Bob, thanks for having me, man. And um, yeah, just stay focused. 
keep moving forward and uh, love you much, brother. Thank you. I'm Adrian Sykes, and thanks for listening to Did You Know, a Downstreet production. Our thanks to Mark for sharing his story, and also to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, to our producer, Cass Denton, to Ella Ruby on the socials, and to Vega Brothers for our theme music. Big thanks as ever to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You can now apply to be mentored by the guests of the Digino podcast. Please check out the show's website, www.diginopodcast.com, all one word, for all the information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode, where I'll be in conversation with Warner Chapel's MD and Head of International A&R, Shani Gonzalez, about her career to date. I feel like if I didn't grow up in New York with and have the vantage point that I had there, I don't know that I would be in music and certainly not living in London and, and having the kind of international role that I have at Warner Chapel. This was Did You Know? Until the next time. <laughs>